inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce The Trial of the Century. The Trial of the 20th Century, Part 4, Clarence Darrow Hired. And so it was that the stunned and shattered and wealthy business executives, the fathers of the two murder suspects, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, retained America's most famous defense attorney of the era. It was an all-out effort against all odds to prevent their sons from a short date with the hangman which was surely the fate that awaited them should they be convicted. Especially so, in light of their confessions, such a, such a fate appeared inevitable. And that Loeb's father would die of a sudden heart attack within a few weeks of the conclusion of his son's trial might seem, and might be seen, as unsurprising, as nothing in life might possibly be worse, more a more shocking catastrophe than for a father to wake up one day and learn that his brilliant teenage son was a calculating, cold-blooded, heartless, thrill-seeking murderer than perhaps to be the father and the mother who has just learned it was their teenage son that had been murdered by a brilliant, calculated, cold-blooded, heartless, thrill-seeking, murderous neighbor. A relative, no less. Your son, the victim of a senseless, brutal murder. I mean, it's just horrible. Loeb, Loeb's father was, and he proved incapable of withstanding the shock, the pain, and the shame that attended to and just overwhelmed the man whom had learned his son had been culpable in and was capable of such an inconceivable bestial atrocity as he was. It was, it was all beyond what this father could endure. And as for the, the Franks family, their torment and suffering had to be exponentially worse. Be, it's beyond understanding, incomprehensible. You know, that much was, it was certain. That they'd be forced to endure the trial of their son's murders, Leopold and Loeb, it, it it would not be unlike the father of Ronald Goldman, who had been forced to endure the horror of O.J. Simpson's trial for the senseless murder of, of his son by O.J. Simpson 70 years later. And it was to America's most well-known, most highly regarded defense attorney in the 1920s, uh, Clarence Darrow, that the families of Leopold and Loeb had turned to um, defend their sons in an indefensible situation. Darrow was an impassioned 
advocate of the interests of his clients. And he was known for his dramatic oratorical skills. Daryl for decades had persuaded judges, juries. Hell, he, he, he persuaded anybody fortunate enough to witness his dry, you know, dramatic, dynamic, spellbinding, cathartic courthouse orations. He would bring them to, to his point of view. And by the way, if you were to oppose Clarence Darrow in a courtroom, you better be prepared to bring your A-game, as Tiger Woods uh, so memorably would refer to it when he was talking to reporters whenever he had apparently um, failed or forgotten to, to bring to the course that day his A-game. Because if, if you're facing, if you're opposing Clarence Darrow that day, it, it meant you really needed to have an A-game to stand any chance whatsoever. And and Darrow, Clarence Darrow had been in a position that he could choose to take on only the toughest cases or the cases he found most intriguing or intellectually interesting or stimulating or in which important or moral ethicals of which, you know, he was a believer were at stake. He could take those kind of cases and those kind only. But when when one does elect to take on the toughest, uh, most intriguing, the most indefensible of cases or the lost causes, as appeared Leopold and Loeb, one is bound to lose now and then. You know, three quarters, three quarters of a century uh, later, prosecutor turned author, best-selling author, by the way, Vincent Bugliosi, he may have been undefeated in murder trials as a prosecutor in L.A. County. I believe... He had 103 trials and 103 convictions. But su such a, uh, a record is really the exception to the rule, you know, that one might never lose. Or maybe, uh, from a different perspective, it might be argued that Bugliosi ought to have gone to trial in far more cases, risk losing once in a while, push things, push the envelope a bit further, perhaps. I mean, who knows? Maybe some murderers walked away when they shouldn't have because Bugliosi was, you know, he didn't believe 100% in his case or he didn't believe he had a 100% chance of winning. In business, as a salesman, I made it a principle to adhere to a policy by which I'd maximize the chances that I would win in a public forum and lose, you know, rarely and if so, only in private. You know, the, there was there was no sense in providing the competition with more reasons that they should feel confident. I just didn't think that was very productive for me. And in Clarence Darrow's world, all his cases, every one of them, were high-profile, newsworthy public affairs. And and as such, he'd experienced the highs and lows associated with any defense counselor whom might very well, he might very well have served as the model gladiator, you know, for, that Teddy Roosevelt had in mind when he wrote his famous man in the arena speech, because all Clarence Darrow's cases were in the public eye. And Darrow agreed, Clarence Darrow agreed to take on the lead role in the defense of the defendants Leopold and Lowe in what would become known um, as the trial of the century. It was, a, it was an absolutely lost cause, if there was ever a lost cause, because, well, because they had, they had confessed to the crime. They'd given all the details of the crime. They were guilty of the crime. 
But he took the case because Darrow did because he was philosophically was in opposition morally, ethically, to the imposition of the death penalty, no matter the crime. Darrow did not believe in the morality of the state-ordered execution of a human being. Uh, you know, the state-ordered taking of a life, no matter how heinous the nature of the offense. And Darrow would assume the Leopold and Loeb defense for this reason, and despite the fact he he was now in his mid-60s, and he had suffered already some big-time public losses in other prominent cases in Chicago dating back three decades. Darrow, though, I mean, the, the man was he, was, he had proven himself to be a brave, valiant, um, tough, resilient competitor. And yeah, he'd been knocked to the, the canvas before on multiple occasions, actually. Um, but never was he ever down for the count. So let's go back 30 years. In 1893, remember the Leopold Lode trial was 1924, but in 1893, Patrick, uh, Patrick Prendergast had been a, a small-time political operative in the Democratic Party. <laughs> okay, Chicago. In the Democratic Party, who supported the mayor's successful campaign for a fifth term as mayor of Chicago. And, and Prendergast went, uh, became incensed, furiously pissed off, insanely so, when he had not been rewarded with a position, any appointed position, somewhere, somewhere within the hierarchy of the administration of Mayor Carter Harrison, post his electoral uh, victory as mayor for the fifth time. Grudge festering, Prendergast was not going to accept this slight lying down. No, he was not. And like Network's Howard Beale a century later, he was not going to take it any longer. No, he wasn't. And Prendergast held Mayor Carter Harrison personally responsible for this slight. He would make Harrison pay. And Prendergast decided he had no viable recourse but to resort to extreme measures. Make Harrison a victim of a, a personal, extraordinary rendition to right this wrong. And after he'd do what he set out to do, he knew he wouldn't be winding up with a position within the city administration. True, but he'd make Harrison regret this demeaning snub because he would be dead. You know, Chicago-style payback, that's for sure. Which meant Prendergast would, would do what he did, which was go to the mayor's home and shoot him in his own home. <laughs> when, you know, he did this when it was totally clear that no appointment would be forthcoming. And I can think I can see the reason why Prendergast wouldn't have been offered a job, don't you? Anyway, Prendergast found his way to Harrison's home, the mayor's home, on October 28th, uh, 1893. And he rang the door, doorbell at 7.50 p.m. And he was welcomed into the mayor's home by a maid who went to wake up the sleeping Harrison who was taking a nap on a sofa in his parlor room. And when Harrison got up and stepped into the hallway from that parlor, Prendergast never hes hesitated, not for one moment. No, he immediately stepped forward and shot the mayor of Chicago three times with a thirty-eight revolver. The second shot pierced his heart. 
I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the famous Irish six pack, but he had shot the mayor of Chicago from point blank range, and he was dead. Post you know post assassination. In the in those days, there was there was in Chicago there was no horsing around with the rendering of the meeting out of justice by law. An accused has a right to as an and is entitled to a speedy trial. And by God, the city of Chicago would make certain that Prendergast's rights were protected, neither violated nor denied. He would get that speedy trial. Due process, you betcha. Right to a speedy trial? You got it, pal. Well, indeed. Within seven months, Prendergast watched the wheels of justice um, spin like a gyroscope. Perhaps. Perhaps far, far more, far more swiftly than Prendergast might have thought remotely possible, or perhaps wanted to experience firsthand. And despite um, famed defense attorney Clarence Darrow's best efforts to plead his client insane, and therefore not responsible for his murderous actions, Prendergast had been arrested, indicted, tried, defended, convicted, and hanged inside of eight months. Now, now there's a speedy trial process for you just to serve. In fact, 500 tickets were issued to witnesses interested in watching Prendergast get hanged in Cook County Jail. By the way, as a PS, that's where I taught for 18 months a long time ago. Darrow had um, introduced at trial evidence that you know like so many so many other Irishmen Prendergast had been um, dropped on his head at a young age <laughs> I would say as an Irishman who who hasn't been anyway in his case he was dropped on his head at, at, at the age of four and it was an injury so severe that he was unconscious for um, a long period of time and then suffered vomiting for four weeks thereafter or so it's reported Therefore, he might well have suffered brain damage. But then there were so many Irish in Chicago at the time who'd been dropped on their heads. So what? What did they have to do with the mayor of Chicago being assassinated by this guy? Prendergast, um, he was described as a peculiar child. Um, he was solitary, irritable, excitable, uh, with a poor the poor memory who did poorly in school. And later, you know, that he, he suffered from massive persecution complex with fits of grandiosity. So two things. Number one, you can see why this guy wouldn't have gotten a job within the administration, anywhere within the administration. And so many Irish had suffered from this kind of problem. So what? What does that have to do with the assassination of the mayor? Nothing. Not in the eyes of Chicagoans. And, and by the way, it is true that in modern medical research, it has been demonstrated that the Irish have the highest propensity for neurological disorder than any other ethnic group on planet Earth. This is a truth. Cannot be denied. It's probably the result of genetic mutations uh, resulting from you know, the great hunger, the potato famine in the mid-19th century. But again, as respects the mayor of Chicago being assassinated by this guy, who cares? Chicagoans didn't. You know, Sigmund Freud at that very time was already in the process of perfecting 
his personal observation that of all the ethnic groups on planet Earth, the Irish were the least likely to benefit from the practice of psychotherapy. Oh my God, this is an indictment. Doesn't make it untrue, does it? And by the way, to a jury, again, so what? What does that have to do with the assassination of the mayor of Chicago? But, but this last Freudian argument was not yet an argument that Daryl could have relied upon to save um, his condemned client because Freud hadn't yet published his theory about the essential nuttiness of the Irish and their innate ability to do anything about it. Though I suspect in those times, in that city, after what Prendergast had done, likely it would have made it would have had zero impact upon the outcome of the trial. Zero. A hereditary victim of the potato famine who'd been dropped on his head. No, no way was the jury going to let this guy walk for these reasons, these excuses. It was just not going to happen. So Prendergast was going down. And he'd obtained the same level of mercy he displayed toward the late Mayor Harrison. Zero. None. Nada. I shot the sheriff, may bring you know a smile to your face, perhaps, but never should it be confused in Chicago with, I shot the mayor. It's not going to help you. You're not going to be smiling. And in the case of the city of Chicago versus Prendergast, that crazy Irishman with an absolute closure of his case, a certainty that was later denied, uh, Bobby Fuller, whose murder case has yet to have been resolved, Prendergast could rightfully claim that he had, in his terms, I fought the law and the law won. And so we've introduced one of the big, nasty, adverse verdicts in a murder trial that was experienced by Clarence Darrell. His client was gone, Darrell had lost, but he would be back. He'd be back with Leopold and Loeb. But there's an interim case that we'll be covering as well. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you'll tune in again. Bye-bye.
it is worse than I have no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end And there was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold Lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever Get myself back Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift On the high sea